Hi, this is Abu Dokal. Uh, recording this voice memo from uh, Gaza Strip. Today is day 18 of the war, um, and we're still stranded in Gaza. My wife, myself, and our one-year-old son. This is Aboud Okal. In September, him and his wife, Wafa Abu Zayda, traveled from their home in Boston to the West Bank and Gaza. They wanted their family to meet their son, a baby, Youssef. Then Israel launched its war in response to a Hamas attack on October 7th that left more than 1,200 people dead. The family found themselves trapped in Gaza. We've been trying to stay strong, but it hasn't been uh, easy. Um, Airstrikes have intensified the last few days, and especially last night. Um, It's become constant all night uh, for most of the day. Uh, My son was not able to sleep. We've been trying to soothe him as much as we can and keep him shielded from from the wrath of the war. Aboud and his family heard the bombs dropping as Israel stepped up its military invasion. More than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in the territory since October 7th, including at least 4,600 children. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. We're trying to stay strong, uh, but we cannot help but feel hopeless and abandoned. Abood and his family are U.S. citizens. And eventually, after nearly a month, they managed to leave Gaza through Egypt. They're now back safe in the Boston suburbs. I was able to call them up from home there. But most of their family, their parents, siblings, nieces, and nephews, are still in danger. We know what they're going through. It's, it, you cannot just move on. That's the part that once we left, I don't think we can we can unsee that or forget about that because it is a continuous struggle and it continues to get worse and worse every day since we left. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, November 20th. Today... I speak with Abud Okal about what life has been like for people inside Gaza since the start of the Israel-Gaza war. Abud was recording a voice diary while he was stuck in Gaza, and we'll hear some of those recordings throughout our conversation, now that he and his family are back home safe. Then, you'll hear from the Post's Louisa Lovelock, who explains the scale of devastation in Gaza and how Israel is carrying out this military campaign. Abud, can you tell me about the trip that you and your wife, Wafa, decided to take with your young son? Why did you take this trip, and what is your connection to Gaza? We're both Palestinian-American. We both have family that live uh, either in, in the West Bank or in Gaza. So we wanted to introduce Yusuf, you know, to cousins, uh, uncles and aunts that he hasn't had a chance to meet, as well as grandparents on both sides, so... Wow, his first time meeting all this family, yeah? That is first time for Yusuf to meet many of those family members, especially the cousins his age. And and he's he's extremely social, so we knew he would enjoy that uh, very much. And Wafa gets to spend time, as she has a brother and a sister that live out there. 
um, and she went there t- for, for for school, uh, and she grew up most of her time, her life there. So in the West Bank. In the West Bank, yes. And what about you? Where did you grow up? I did not grow up in the West Bank. I I was born in Saudi Arabia actually, and I grew up there until I was about ten years old, and then I moved to Gaza with my parents when they retired until I was 19 or 20, and that's when I moved to the U.S. The Gaza of then, what was it like for you? Like, what is oh, your feeling about Gaza? Tell me about it. It was amazing. It was, it was, it was a really nice uh, home. It was a beach city with a lot of, a lot of things to do. Um, I was attending a friend's uh, PhD defense three days, four days before the war started. At, at one of the universities and campuses that I watched getting bombed on TV uh, while in Gaza. So uh, I think, I think, I think it's, a, it's going to be a very different place. Can you tell me about your experience of October 7th? Do you remember that day and when you realized something was really wrong? I think I remember that day, early morning, I woke up, uh, I remember hearing the, the, the sound of rockets launching. I thought originally it's an isolated incident, but then as the morning played out and more news rolled in, I think we realized the magnitude of, of um, the incident and, and, and the consequences that we needed to, to leave the area as soon as possible primarily to keep keep Yusuf safe. Who were you with at the time? Uh, it was me, Wafa, uh, Yusuf, her parents, my parents, um, my siblings, uh, my brother and, and sister and, and their families, as well as, you know, uh, Wafa's few uncles and aunts. This is the list of people that ended up all sheltering together um, in a, at a single home. Hey, it's a Budokal uh, from Gaza. It's uh, today is October 28th, um, and that marks day 22 since the war has started. We've been staying in the same location since the uh, uh, since we moved from northern Gaza uh, down to Rafah to stay closer to the border. Um, it's about day 12. Once you now. made it to the south, what was it like trying to live there? We shared the mindset from, from with others that were there and were not planning on leaving Gaza, how to survive and, and basically what it means to figure out what your food supply looks like and um, how are you going to get drinking water and uh, what are you going to do about power and communications when it's down and... Um, it's 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 a real struggle that you have to figure out all on top of living through the airstrikes and living through the actual uh, death that comes from above. Um, we are almost out of drinking water today. I think we have enough just to last us through the night, and then uh, tomorrow would be basically out. We have uh, been securing drinking water, um, supply enough basically for... Uh, one to two days, and, and the way we get that is through uh, walking for about one and a half miles uh, each way. Um, to a Eventually, I think what we could 
secure was uh, about a gallon a day for the 40 people at home, and we would just we would just leave it in the kitchen counter. Wow, that's that's uh, not much water for 40 people. Yeah, no, and, not much water. And also, what about your son? He primarily relies on milk. Um, we've we've run out of milk for him when we were there. Uh, unfortunately, yesterday we ran out of milk for him. We opened the last box, and um, uh, basically tonight we would be uh, completely out. It would be his first night ever um, in his entire life to go to sleep without having milk. Um, so we're Did things start to change in late October after Israel began its ground invasion of Gaza? Did you notice a shift, or what was it like during that time? I think the ground invasion, that was a big fear for us um, of, of being stranded in Gaza and us being trapped in it. Last night uh, was the hardest we've experienced so far. Uh, it's been a mix of sounds all night uh, between airstrikes, uh, explosions, um, artillery shelling, fighter jets flying at low altitude, Drones buzzing all night. Probably the, uh, the most noticeable and scariest of all is the sound of missile whistles that uh, you could hear flying over the house. Uh, and the sky has been lit up with red and orange colors uh, from the intensity of these bombings. Actually, every every morning you'd wake up and you see the amount of dust around you, and you'd just go to sleep and you put your phone next to you. You'd pick it up the next morning and. The second you touch it, your fingertips are full of black dust. And uh, Yusuf had a runny nose, and I, I remember I've never seen black mucus before. Uh, and that's just, you know, you smell the debris and, and, uh, and the, uh, um, the gunpowder smell. Uh, we, we, every night we try to sandwich Yusuf in between us in case of any flying debris or shattered glass made its way uh, at least... Uh, he would be uh, protected to some degree. Did your family, you and your wife and your son, try to leave, given you have, you know, you're Americans, you have U.S. passports. How, how did that go? We tried a few different times, actually, um, as we continued to stay in touch with the State Department. Um, on, on three separate occasions, they had sent us written as well as um, via phone call communications that we should head to the Rafah crossing and and, and then us uh, crossing into Egypt. And yet in the three times that we've done that, it did not work out. The crossing never opened. So we've attempted that a few different times. And, and uh, at the time, eventually it did work out and we did succeed in leaving Gaza. When it became clear to you that you were going to be successful in leaving Gaza, what thoughts were running through your head? Mixed feelings, for sure. We're leaving to safety, but we're leaving, again, parents behind. We're leaving siblings. We're leaving. Yusuf has left cousins that he played with for 27 days, you know, as we were all sheltering in the same place. You know, one would have thought that we would be celebrating when we left um, but we quickly realized that, no, you, you, you're more worried about the people that you left behind. Are you still in touch with them? Do you yeah. know what's happening with them? Every day, yeah. 
What's the situation? Uh, it gets worse and worse. I think when we were there, we ran out of cooking gas a few times and then eventually completely out. That continues to be the situation for them right now. Water situation remains to be the same. They're running on a gallon, uh, about a gallon a day. I'm also thinking about what you had said of the mixed feelings you had once you realized you were going. And now that you're here, what does it feel like to be, you know, in the suburbs of Boston? You can turn on your tap water and the water is running. You can put your son to sleep in the next room and know that there's not going to be a missile strike that hits your home or is going to wake him up. And it just feels like, it sounds like such a contrast. I'm just wondering what that is like for you all and how you're adjusting and as you were thinking about everyone you left. Yeah, it it feels weird. Both Wafa and I caught ourselves, uh, you know, having the tap water cracked open, barely cracked open. Um, I've We've gone to bathrooms using flashlights on our phones, realizing that a few minutes later on, you know, that you could have just hit the switch. So we we have a, a lot more appreciation for things that we, minute things that we take for granted. I think we broke down, Wafa and I, the first night we took a shower in Cairo at a hotel because uh, it was hot running water that we haven't seen in weeks. And then you know that your parents are experiencing that and continuing to experience that. What do you want people in the world to understand, given everything that you have witnessed and experienced? What do you want people to know about about what life is like in Gaza right now? I think people need to remember that what's happening in Gaza right now is happening to real people, to real human uh, uh, beings. That you know, when you hear when you hear of. Um, people, innocent civilians dying by the thousands, uh, and many of whom are children. There is nothing okay about that. People in, in Gaza right now are dealing with um, things that I don't think any human being should be uh, uh, dealing with, especially that this is all man-made, right? This, is, this could, could be brought to a stop, and it should be brought to a stop. Um, I think there is no need for the continuation of of innocent civilian deaths on on both sides. Um, There is no justification for that. And I think that's what people need to realize. Those those of us that are watching the news, um, it's easy to just deal with it as those are just numbers. Uh, But those are actual, you know, people that each have their stories, their families, their loved ones. And I think what's happening is just... Um, unprecedented, and it should not should not be allowed to continue to go on um, any longer. Abu, thank you so much for making time to speak with me, and I'm glad you're home. Thank you, Elahi. Last week, Wafa's parents were able to leave Gaza and come to the U.S., but the majority of their extended family remain in southern Gaza. After the break, I speak with Post reporter Louisa Lovelock about the rising civilian casualties in Gaza and whether there could be a ceasefire. 
We'll be right back. Louisa, we've just heard from a Palestinian-American family that had been stuck in Gaza since October 7th, and they managed to get home safely. But the vast majority of people in Gaza have been unable to go someplace else. It's It seems impossible. And so I, I want to understand what life is like right now for them, for the majority of people in Gaza, and also the scale of what is happening So to start, can you tell me how many Palestinians have been hurt in the Israeli military campaign in Gaza? We know that more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed. At least 50% of the population is under the age of 18. And of the more than 11,000 people who have died, at least 4,600 of them are children. And one of the big takeaways from this is the majority of people who have been killed in Israeli airstrikes are civilians. And and how do we know this? So the figures come from the Gaza Health Ministry, which is part of the government which is controlled by Hamas. But the figures, to our understanding, are broadly accurate. U.S. intelligence officials say that they have increasing confidence in the figures. So this is the body counting the figures at the moment. But due to the conditions at the moment, the Ministry of Health actually isn't able to update the death toll. It hasn't done in about a week now. So it certainly is higher if not hundreds higher than thousands higher, but it's no longer possible to count the dead. The issue that we're seeing is just the sheer relentlessness of this air campaign. And we are seeing mass casualty events every single day within hospitals that are unable to cope with the flow of casualties now because they don't have the medication, they don't have fuel to keep the lights on. And the thing that compounds the suffering is that you can't get out. And as we heard from the family that is thankfully now back in the United States, there isn't really anywhere safe in Gaza anymore. There isn't anywhere to run inside that territory where you know you won't be struck. Wow. I also wonder how those Palestinians in Gaza who want to flee for safety, whether it's to another part of Gaza or leave Gaza altogether, feel about leaving their homes Is this something that people are bringing up to you, this fear of displacement being permanent? This fear of displacement being permanent is being brought up to us, honestly, every single day in nearly every interview that we do about the displacement. People are referencing this as another Nakba, which means catastrophe in Arabic. That is referencing the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forcibly displaced and expelled from their homes. This is something which has left deep trauma through the generations. And as we see these pictures of people on foot walking from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, and some of them leaving through Egypt through medical evacuations or because they finally, through some luck, been able to get on a list, these are images that are causing people to remember the Nakba and say, this is the second Nakba. That's the phrase we keep hearing. What does international law say about this military conflict and human harm. What what laws are there? Has Israel followed those laws? Is there any sort of international consensus about this? 
In terms of the baseline of international law, what everyone agrees on is the fact that militaries are required to make clear distinctions between civilians and militants, and they have to take all possible precautions to prevent human harm. Human rights groups have been flagging a growing number of strikes as potential war crimes and press for international investigations. The Israelis, on the other hand, say that the civilian harm from their strikes is proportional. They are fighting Hamas militants who hide, they say, among the civilian population. And so it is simply impossible not to hit civilians. What we seem to be seeing, what former IDF legal advisors and former US officials are saying, is that during this conflict, the Israeli authorities appear to have loosened their threshold for what is an acceptable number of civilian casualties per strike for the military. And the reason for this, they say, is because in the post-October 7th period, the goal of this is self-defense. The goal of this is existential So they say that the magnitude of the military necessity of these strikes allows for a higher threshold of civilian casualties. Now, this is the Israeli argument. It's certainly not something that many international human rights legal scholars agree with. And this is precisely why we're seeing calls for an investigation. The rules of engagement are classified, so in any individual strike, No one can turn around without that information and and know what the military goal of the strike was. But when this war ends, there will be huge calls from significant quarters for these strikes to be investigated. What do we know about how the Israeli military is choosing its targets? And I'm thinking in particular about Al-Shifa Hospital. This is the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip. Our colleague Steve Hendricks crossed into Gaza this weekend. He he did not go there independently. He and a small handful of other journalists were escorted by Israeli military officials, IDF. And, And these officials were keen to affirm their belief that the hospital was doubling as a Hamas military base. Do we know anything more about that? Israel's military campaign is predicated on the need to end Hamas rule entirely across the territory. And its messaging about the Shifa hospital in particular has been getting louder and louder in recent weeks. They have been saying not just that this is a base, but this is an important command and control center for senior Hamas leaders. The evidence we've seen thus far is highly inconclusive. There is a tunnel that we've seen that may link down, potentially, the Israelis say, to a Hamas Hamas tunnel network. But we've seen nothing to suggest there is command and control there. What we have seen is that this was a primary care facility right until the point at which the Israeli military went in. You had babies who had been taken out of their incubators because they no longer had fuel, premature babies, who died before the World Health Organization was able to evacuate them. You have more than 250 patients there tonight awaiting evacuation, people on dialysis, people with amputations, which means they can't move. It is an incredibly severe humanitarian situation inside the walls of that hospital. And as yet, the Israelis have not presented a clear case for why they thought that that extent of human suffering was justifiable based on what they have currently found. Israeli officials insist that Hamas has embedded itself within the civilian population in Gaza. Luisa, is there evidence of that? What does that look like and what does that mean for how Israel responds? There is certainly evidence that Hamas has embedded itself among the 
the civilian population of Gaza. They have an extensive tunnel network which runs from north to south across the territory. We've seen videos of them firing weapons from civilian areas. All of this is certainly incontrovertibly true. But the question every single time Air Force planners decide to strike an area is how many civilians are you catching within the territory that you are striking? And so even when militants are, quote, embedding themselves within civilian infrastructure, the warring party with the bombs still has a responsibility to work out what exactly they will be hitting when they lease that strike. And what does the United States government have to say about how Israel is conducting itself right now? Because the U.S. is Israel's most ardent supporter. Has there been a shift in that support? Well, from what we're hearing, U.S. officials are growing increasingly concerned about the civilian toll of this conflict. Right from the start, President Biden was was very fulsome in his support for the Israelis. And it does seem that there is growing discomfort among some U.S. officials from the top of the administration down about the fact that that has been seen as consent, if you like, for what's happened, for one of the most damaging air wars certainly I have ever covered. So what U.S. officials are telling us is that in private, they're being very clear with the Israelis. They're saying, you have a right to self-defense. We believe in your right to self-defense, but you have to make sure that the strikes you are doing are proportional. Hamas also took more than 200 people hostage in the attacks on October 7th and and presumably took them back into Gaza. Is there any possibility in the coming weeks of a ceasefire to allow the release of hostages. Is that something that is possible at this moment? The messaging in recent days certainly has been that we are edging closer and closer to some sort of deal between Israel and Hamas, brokered by Qatar, which would see a large-scale hostage release coming in return for a ceasefire, for a humanitarian pause. The thing is, We've heard these messages before. We've repeatedly heard that we are close to a deal and nothing has happened. Arab media was saying yesterday that 11 a.m. this morning was meant to be a ceasefire. We didn't see it. So what we know is that talks continue. What we know is that more than 200 people remain hostage in the Gaza Strip in terrifying conditions with these bombs falling ripped away from their families. At least one woman is believed to have given birth in these conditions. If there is no ceasefire, then what do the next few weeks look like based on your reporting and the conversations you're having with people in Gaza? Without a ceasefire at this stage or without a profound change in Israel's strategy, the pace of devastation and death will only accelerate. My colleagues have been speaking today to people inside the Indonesian hospital, as I say, this final operating hospital in northern Gaza for major major casualties. And they think that within days, they will be unable to treat the wounded when they come. That means someone's mother, someone's brother, someone's sister, when they are struck, as inevitably civilians will be, by airstrikes in the coming days, absenting a shift in strategy, there won't be anyone to treat them. There won't be anyone to do the amputations, there won't be anyone to administer the painkillers. And so the only certainty we have in the absence of a ceasefire 
is that mass civilian suffering will continue. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Louisa Lovelock reports on global crises for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Peter Bresnan. It was mixed by Eliza Dennis and edited by Monica Campbell and Maggie Penman. Thanks to Debbie Bleacher and Joanne Slater. Also, you've been hearing a lot about Washington Post subscriptions from us lately because ad-free audio is now available for all Washington Post subscribers and Apple Podcasts. But there is another reason to subscribe. Our biggest sale of the year is happening with a Black Friday sale running now through November 29th. You can get a whole year of the Washington Post plus that ad-free audio for just 99 cents every four weeks. Don't miss the chance to subscribe at our lowest price of the year. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thank you. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.